to talk about what I call stepping out of samsara, just momentarily. But that's good. Momentarily is good. Um, one of my teachers, one of my current teachers, likes to say all the time that meditation is the work of the mind, which it seems obvious, but sometimes we forget. We get so caught up in trying to make things happen. Um, and by work of the mind, he means, as the Dalai Lama says, that um, all happiness and suffering begins in the mind, in the heart. The word we're using, chitta, for mind means mind and heart, both in the Pali language. It's a, not a differentiation that's made. So, like his example that he gives, it's obvious that suffering, happiness, begins and ends in the mind. If you're uh, in a really depressed space or you're in grief or something like that, you could be you know, on the most lovely vacation of your life. You could be in a wonderful situation and you don't, you're not really happy, right? You don't enjoy it. So the external circumstances don't necessarily bring happiness. And the reverse... And again, this is obvious, but we forget it. It's when you're feeling balanced, you're feeling good, or you just fell in love, or whatever, and things are great, then something difficult could come along and it doesn't fluster us the way that it might at other times. And we just might notice that in passing, but we might not really quite remember or see the radical nature of this. So the text for the talk this evening, short text that I'm sure most of you are familiar with, those first two verses from the Dhammapada, from the Buddha, saying, mind is the forerunner of all states. Other translations say mind is the forerunner of all things. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind And trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Mind is the forerunner of all things, of all states. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow unshakable. I actually think this is a really uh, radical and profound statement pointing to the, the real nature of what we are, what creates happiness, what creates suffering, what creates our whole idea of the world. So I just want to talk about that a little. And I deliberately chose a translation that used the words impure and pure, which are not always... Um, words that, at least in this, this culture, culture in the States, that we really vibe to. We don't like to think of ourselves as impure. It kind of you know, brings along a certain negative, uh, aversive quality. But in these terms, it's very specific. Talking or acting with an impure mind simply means, not so simple maybe, but what it means is a moment, just a moment, Remember, don't stretch it out into past and future. Then it gets untenable, unbearable, overwhelming. We realize that it's, it's always only just this moment. So we think or act an impure mind in this moment simply means a moment of consciousness, of conscious knowing that is colored by the qualities of craving, clinging, of aversion or fear. Hatred is the kind of shortcut term for that. And the bottom line, confusion, delusion, it's all about me. Colored by those, one or more of those qualities, and not recognized, so that it's as if our awareness, our consciousness is looking through greed-colored glasses, me-colored glasses, you know, hatred-colored glasses, not recognizing that, so focused outward that through the greed, through the hatred, through the confusion, we're speaking or acting. And all it creates, basically, is trouble and confusion. And we don't always tend to get that. You know, it feels so normal and natural. I hope it does, and I hope you're not agreeing with me. But... 
in my experience, the reactions of desire, you know, that clinging that I've got to have, of aversion to what's unpleasant, of the discontent Rodney was speaking about, both of which, of course, are founded deeply in sense of me. There is no desire or aversion without the sense of me in a moment, right? That just can, it's so frequent maybe, so familiar that it can feel as though, well, that's just normal. And when we, um, when we don't stop and look at it, the impure mind feeling like the normal thing, the pure mind, which is simply a moment of conscious awareness that isn't colored by greed, hatred, delusion, that can seem like some, you know, ideal really far away because we're so impure and disgusting. And we start then looking at how much, how frequently wanting or aversion or discontent, which is what I would call, when Rodney was talking about noise, that's what I would say noise is. Not every thought, but these reactive qualities. They can seem so frequent and we get so caught up in relating to them that the ideal of a pure mind becomes something to strive towards and our practice can turn into a a striving, effortful activity based in either aversion or greed to try and get me to be pure. Never going to happen from that motivation, from that intention. So what I'd like to... Look at how about if we open our minds to the possibility that these habits of relating to experience, to objects, to the world, from wanting greed to the pleasant things, from pushing away aversion, discontent when things aren't the way we want it, to having it all be about me. What if those are simply habits, but they're not actually the norm. They're not actually the place that we can rely on. They're not actually needing to be our deepest refuge. They're simply, uh, they're natural in terms of it's just nature when we're perceiving inaccurately to respond in this way. And if we don't learn how to look in a more natural in a a more clear way if we don't learn that then we keep on acting in these same ways because we don't really recognize that they're not working so I'll talk I'll keep on talking about that so what if our practice is not about trying to get out the pickaxe and dig up with aversion all the impurities. Let me get rid of that greed, get rid of that aversion. I'm here sitting two days, and all I see is how much aversion is arising in my mind, and I've got to get rid of it. I've only got six more days. And we forget to notice, what's the attitude in the mind right now? Oh, that's aversion. What if that's all we have to do? What if it's not my job since I'm not the center of the universe. It's not my job to control every mind moment and make sure nothing difficult arises. What if all we have to do is shift the perspective, shift what we notice from being so engrossed in the object, the breath is calm, my mind is filled with aversion, to simply the knowing of what's happening. Aversion feels like this. What if that's actually the norm? What if that's actually all that's necessary to begin to recognize, to land in, to trust what Rodney called the silence, what I would call from this text, the pure mind or heart? What if that's actually more natural to us, but we're just sort of in the habit of not recognizing it? You know how... The Buddha often spoke about his teachings, even back then, as going against the stream, like swimming upstream against society. Okay, that's, that's obvious. I don't think I need to go into that so much. Just 
Although it's different from 20 years ago or 30 years ago. 30 years ago when we go on these long silent retreats, like if I was sitting next to someone on a plane and they said, what do you do? I said, I teach meditation. That usually ended the conversation unless they were a fundamentalist Christian and then I was sorry I ever said anything <laughs> I have to say. Fundamentalist, not just that. But um, nowadays, if I say that, most of the time people are really interested they, they have no clue, really. They go, oh, that's what I need to do. You know, I need to relax and just be happy. That's what they think you're doing. Ha ha. You know, they have no clue. But the attitude is one of interest. But still, it's not really the norm, so society-wise. But more important, the what I want to talk about tonight is it's moving upstream against the habits, the view in our own hearts and mind, the way that we view the world, the way we've been taught to view ourselves in the world that we don't even recognize. This particular aspect of um, oh, the way the mind works really fascinates me. Just how, I mean, how the way we think, just how our thoughts construct the world, how we think constructs the world. And when we reiterate uh, those same thoughts or those same views or everyone around us holds the same view, we don't even realize that's a view or description. It's just how it is. And it might be useful. So it's not that we dislike, but just to know it might be a view. So just a little example. I was in, um, in Burma in January with some friends, and we were going around uh, to a lot of different nunneries and some different villages giving Donna, doing this and that, a lot of different things. And there were several of us, and you always take pictures, and so there's lots of photographs. So we were back in the monastery where we were staying, and one of my friends, uh, a lot of you probably know her, a Swiss woman who's been a nun there for like 17, 18 years. So we were looking at some of the photos on the computer that she had taken with her camera, and on some of them, uh, like on, on, on one of my one of me on my skirt and some other people in other places, there were these like round, perfectly round kind of bright light things, you know, on the different places on people in the pictures. So the friend who'd been there for 17 years and she's really gotten very Burmese, who's a very faith-based society, you know, and the, in the Buddhist teaching. So she goes immediately. She goes, "Oh, these are devas." She totally believed they were devas. She called us in and go, these are devas. Went to the Sayadaw, the teacher, these are devas. And then another friend there who's also a nun, but her uh, background is as, she's a PhD in science. She's a real scientist. So immediately she goes, those aren't devas. That's just some moisture that collected in the lens cap, you know, and that's what it was. Though, well, you know, who knows, really? So I thought it would be interesting when I got home, because I had, pictures of the similar time in people, a different camera, to put it on my computer and see. And the pictures weren't exactly the same, and it wasn't, but on some of them there were these round circles. Now, is that Davis? I don't know. But I'm bringing it up because what I love is that space where we just hold open. Who knows? Just see, oh, that was a world Davis. What? That's so crazy. You know, who would think, oh, maybe that's a possibility. Just maybe there's many different explanations for things, for phenomena in the world. So rather than focus on the explanation, to get familiar with that inner feeling of that openness of not knowing, the willingness to meet experience any moment fresh. So not just only noticing the experience, the sight, the sound, the smell, the taste, the touch, the thought, but the quality in the mind that's being aware of the experience. So we can notice the aversion, but we can also notice that quality of open presence without being colored by meing, by hating, by fearing, by wanting. Ah. Awake and present without judgment, without assessment, without knowing. That allows for reality to reveal itself without our uh, unknown views kind of twisting our perceptions to meet what we think. Do you get a little sense of what I mean? It's just playing with that. So in terms, of, in terms of how the habits of the so-called 
impure mind, how easily in a moment the impure, I, I'm just going to keep using that word, even though I even cringe a little from it, but the habit of wanting when something's nice or we think it will make us feel better. The habit of judging, of pushing away when something's unpleasant or it makes us not feel good or it makes us feel bad about ourselves. The habit of, as Bhikkhu Bodhi says, trying to keep the delusion, the illusion going that everything revolves around me. And you might not consciously think that if you were challenged, but just start to notice as you go through the days, without judgment, with interest. Notice just the kind of thoughts that come up. Not every thought's going to be about you, of course, because actually, this is a secret, we're not really, each of us is not really the center of everything else in the world. There actually isn't really a solid us that's not changing. But it's a trip, isn't it? When you go, each of us here in this room Say there's a loud noise that goes on. Each of us can have our own reaction, and it's about me. Who made that noise? It's affecting my meditation. Why are they doing that? Oh, no, I'm really cool. It's not bothering me at all. My concentration's firm. I can see, oh, no, my concentration isn't good. Why is that person? Don't glad it wasn't me. It was me, but I hope nobody noticed. All of us, with our own little story, from pleasant, from unpleasant, from liking, from fearing, from what does it mean about me? So what if that's just a habit? We can learn to put our reliance, our trust, on the pure aspect of heart and mind. I read a book recently about the, uh, the practice and the philosophy of nonviolence. But this, the, I just want to share this part from the introduction because I found it interesting in terms of this, how we look at things, how we language things, the thoughts we use can really affect our perception in quite deep ways. Well, anyway, it hit me that way. So he's talking about just the word nonviolence, which is basically, in that word nonviolence, the main aspect that the attention is drawn to is violence, you know, and the nonviolence is just a negation. So the main concept you get from that is violence. And nonviolence is sort of, he's talking about how in terms of uh, it as um, a philosophy, it's a really very active, proactive, engaged response to situations and to life. But when one hears nonviolence, it just tends to feel kind of a passive, you just don't do anything, you just, it doesn't really do justice to that. Quality. He says it's not just in English. In, he said in Hindi, for example, ahimsa, it's the same thing. So he said, just, just play with the idea. What if the only word for war or conflict were non-peace? Doesn't it just change a little bit, the whole idea? Non-peace, then in that peace becomes the norm. You know, the thing that we're used to, non-peace becomes the aberration, right? So in the same way, what if, as Ajahn Amaro likes to say, the peace and ease of the mind and body is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body? What if the pure mind that isn't contracted in response to situations with greed, with fear, with meaning. What if that natural peace and ease is actually the reality, the norm? What if the habits of the so-called impure heart and mind, of greeding, of needing, of aversion, of making it all about me, what if those are actually the aberration? What if we could begin to recognize begin to trust, begin to give our interest more to the recognition of the natural peace and ease. Not that it's some distant thing that's going to happen in 15 years and then never change, but it's just momentary, momentary, momentary. What if we really gave a lot more interest and trust to recognizing those moments, that possibility? So, 
I actually think that's a huge part of our practice, of our path. Meditation isn't really about creating some steady state, whether it's concentration, whether it's choiceless awareness. It's not about me creating some state out of that forcing some wisdom and holding on to it. Can't hold on to anything. But it's really about allowing us the space, the quietness in the mind and heart, to recognize what's always available when we stop being so entranced by our reactions, by the reactions of mind. So the natural peace and ease, notice it. I talk about this a lot through the days. It doesn't have to be a big deal. If you're waiting for the big blast of unified bliss that's going to really shake your world and you walk out of here a different person, I'm not talking about that. Maybe that'll happen. May it be so, you know. Maybe it won't. If we're waiting for that, then everything else, you know, isn't good enough, is it? Everything else is just more samsara. But recognize simple moments when you can tune into the awareness, to the knowing of whatever's happening, and the mind isn't in, the heart isn't in reactivity. And you'll see it doesn't matter what the activity is or what the experience is. So taking sitting in the meditation and being with the breath. Sometimes, as someone said, um, sometimes one is with the breath and is, feel it quite easily. Sometimes one is with the breath and it gets very refined and subtle. Then all of a sudden, that becomes very tight and tense. So what if just in the moment that you're just feeling the breath, it's not super concentrated. It's just easy. It's no big deal. You don't get into some story how wonderful the breath is. It's no big deal. There's just a sense of being present with it. If then we could not give so much focus to the breath, but just notice how that peace and ease in the mind and heart, just kind of how it feels. So it's not like really a physical feeling, but we just start to recognize it more. In the walking meditation, sitting on the toilet, drinking a cup of tea, standing out and hearing the birds. Generally, we might tend to notice it more uh, frequently or in the beginning with pleasant things. But it's not. It's got nothing to do with pleasant things. It can be when you're sitting there and your knee is just killing you, killing you, you know, and you're fighting and you're struggling, and then there's just that moment where it's, it's just sensation. The moment where it's just sensation before you go into, wow, I'm doing so good, it's just sensation. The moment when it's just that. If you can notice how that natural peace and ease manifests, we learn to recognize it. Recognize it more and more until you see it's not some uh, really um, abstract far distant thing that we have to create. We can't create it. The act of trying to create actually is what hides it. Not that it's an it that's sitting here, but that in every moment, every moment of when we call, what we call mind, Andy Olinsky, who's the, um, the director of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, he's a, he's a Pali scholar, and I like the way he says things. He talks about describing what we call mind, he says the mind is not a subject, not a thing that has objects as content. I know it can sound like that, the mind that has like aversion sitting there as content, you know, or peace sitting there as content. And then we think of the mind as a steady state. It's not that. But it's an activity. The process of cognizing, the process of knowing a flow of events So when I'm talking about a moment of mind, a moment of citta, it's as if, simple kind of description, it's kind of like, it's a a momentary arising of the quality of consciousness of knowing, you know, of cognizing. Arising and passing, moment to moment. There's no steady state there, so it's birthing and deathing in every moment. And in any moment that that process of cognizing. So for instance, right now, I'm seeing. 
right? I'm seeing all of you. It's a moment of seeing, that cognizing. It's coming with it in that moment or whatever qualities, whatever factors of mind are present. So that could be a moment of calmness and liking. It could be a moment of greed. It could have a sense of me, how do I feel, or sadness or joy, or any of the qualities of mind come with it. You see what I mean? And that's fine. That's just how it works. And every moment is new. So what I love about that is when we begin to not get so focused on the object. So say, back to that knee. When you're sitting and there's pain, with it's pain, I'm trying to be calm with it, but it's pain, it's tight, it's tight, it's tight. And we're not noticing the momentary arising of the known. We don't notice that it's colored with aversion. We keep looking at the pain. The aversion's getting stronger and stronger in me, and we don't notice that. But because it's arising, the cognizing, the knowing, is arising every moment. The stepping out of samsara, what I'm calling, is always available. As soon as we go, oh, it's as if we turn around or widen our field of awareness and include the aversion. Oh, aversion. I know I make it sound so nice. I know it doesn't feel so nice. If I'm going to say, aversion. But even recognizing the aversion, that's a shift. That's a new moment of knowing. And it can really be that there's aversion, and the next moment of knowing it is really a moment of peace and ease. And we don't need to fix it. We don't need to get rid of it. We don't need to get rid of the thing that's, oh, this is aversion. Aversion's like this. Ajahn Sumedho, you know, you probably must know who Ajahn Sumedho is. He uses that languaging a lot, and I love it. That to really, what we're learning to do is not be so interested in whatever's arising and all our reactions to it and how do we feel and what does it mean and how is the breath and how calm is my mind and is this, you know, am I getting concentrated? I'm still superficial. I'm not deep, all of that. Or in life, anything. But more we get interested in what's the quality in the mind that's aware. And it's like a Tai Chi move story. Of, oh, I don't like this and how can I get a better job? Oh, discontent is like this. In that moment, oh, it's like this. That's moving our trust, our reliance into the awareness, into the knowing, and that's always available. When we're mucking around, you know, and liking and disliking and me, and what does it mean about me, and how can I make it better, we're overlooking. We're overlooking the natural peace and ease. So a big part of our path Really, in some ways, all of the different forms of meditation are about uh, setting a foundation to help us recognize the pure mind, natural peace and ease, and to support us to continue to shift the paradigm to realize that that's more the norm, rather than falling back into our reactions, and it's, as Rodney was saying last night, it's very subtle. It doesn't matter how long we've been on a path. It's very subtle and tricky, the sense that it should feel good. It should make me feel good about me. It should somehow fulfill me some sense of achievement, some sense of getting somewhere. It can get more and more subtle. It gets... It's hard for us, and this is the shift, this is the moving upstream against society, against our own habits, to say that it really, it really, really doesn't matter what's happening. Really the meditation, the ultimate, the point of the meditation isn't to get some particular experience. There is no experience that lasts more than that. There can be you know, varieties within it. And sure, some experiences are nicer than others. Some experiences help to cultivate calm. Some experiences cultivate aversion. There's all the skillful means we talk about. But none of the skillful means are useful if the attitude in the mind with which we try to 
carry them out is impure. So all the skillful means in the world practice out of aversion, cultivate aversion. So when I said, doesn't matter what's happening, can we learn to trust enough the natural awareness, the quality of the natural peace and ease, that no matter what's happening, we can just recognize, oh, it's like this. It's like this. It's like this. And sometimes that's not so hard to do. Sometimes it's so hard to trust it, even when you know, even when you really know deeply that for myself, when I'm really caught up in, my mind can be pretty clear, and I'm really looking very carefully at my experience, but a particular suffering personality pattern may be coming up, sense of identification with something, or you may be having a memory or a plan or some you know discussion you had, some relationship thing, whatever. And it comes up, and it comes up with a strong pain or a strong sense of me or a strong sense I need to do something about it. It comes up with some oomph, right? You can notice the oomph. You're aware of the oomph. You can, oh yeah, oomph, maybe that's not you know, the way you name it, but it's like this, but it keeps on going. To have that, that radical trust that the practice is, oh, totally caught up in hating this and needing to fix it, is like this. And that you don't need to do something about it. That the wisdom actually arises by itself through the steadiness of this non-violent, non-interfering, but very present awareness. It's like, that's really hard to trust because we think we have to do. That's what we've been taught. Just to sit and notice and say, well, it really doesn't matter what's happening. Where does your mind go with that? Well, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter what's happening. Why are we busting ourselves sitting and walking and being quiet and following the breath and noticing calm and all of this? They tell us all this stuff and then they say it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't make sense. You know, it doesn't really make sense. Not in the way. Not in the way we think of sense. Because the, the bottom line is once the mind is pure we speak or act with a pure mind, then all the skillful means make sense. But when we're speaking and acting, really caught up in the wanting, in the aversion, in it's about me, we can meditate till the cows come home with strong, vigorous effort. And I imagine many of you have done this. You know, just meditate your heart out. You know, just rising, falling, lifting, placing, noting, noting, breathing, silence, you know, until you just feel like you're going to snap in two. You know, what am I doing wrong? You can be incredibly mindful, noting every single sensation in your breath, in your leg, every movement in your mind. And I've done, believe me, I've done this. I'm not speaking theoretically. And it's just getting tighter, tighter. I'm talking weeks now, months retreat. I'm not just talking a couple days. Tighter, tighter. I'm noting every single damn thing that's happening, no matter how quick. And it's getting tighter, 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 tighter. Because what? I'm not noticing the attitude in the mind that's meditating. It's like, oh. In that particular instance, it was uh, not good enough. I'm not good enough. have to try harder. But another way of striving is wanting. You know, I want enlightenment. Enlightenment or bust. So feel this breath. You know this. You know, and you're really sincere. You're putting out tremendous. It's actually too much effort. But it's looking through, you know, the red glasses and not seeing. But when that's our, that's, you know, that's what we've learned. And, you know, and you can press like that and create experience. Absolutely. Believe, I know, I've done it. And the experience can be useful. It's not like it's bad. But it's so hard to trust, to really trust from that place. I just have to notice the attitude in the mind. What's happening right now? Right now. Right now. Gentle. Relaxed. 24-7. Do you say that here? 24-7? So it's not 24-7. But it's like, okay, just remember yourself. This quality of effort that 
uh, my teacher, he, he often says, so if you don't mind doing this, if you can't bear to move, then don't do it. But if you don't mind, just put your hands together. Okay. Can you feel, can you feel where they're touching? Yes? No? Can you, not too tough, huh? Right. Pretty easy. That quality of effort. That quality of effort. It's, it's actually, it's not daunting. It's not difficult. It actually becomes, as Rodney keeps saying, have fun. It does become enjoyable because we're just noticing what's the quality in the mind and the heart right now without a judgment, without needing to say it should be different. Just noticing. So part of our practice is really learning to recognize and trust and more and more be able to trust the pure mind and heart. And the other half is recognizing when there's so-called impure greed, aversion, confusion in the mind. But as soon as we recognize them with interest, without judging, without taking it personally, it's just how nature is. Oh yeah, that's wanting. You know, maybe it was five weeks before I noticed the wanting. Maybe it's a second, but it doesn't matter. As soon as you notice the wanting, that's all that needs to happen. Over and over and over. You don't have to get rid of it. You don't have to blow it up. You don't have to go and, you know, do something to yourself to never want. You just notice. And when that trying to make everything better, trying to make me better, trying to achieve some end goes away, even just for a moment, oh, I'm completely knotted up in pain and aversion. It's like this. Stuff stops being such a problem. You go through the day, and it's not like you have to make yourself pay attention like some onerous duty because it gets interesting. Because we stop like judging everything that happens. Oh, no, I did that walking. It wasn't good enough. I was thinking, no, okay, i got to try it again. I wonder why I hate walking meditation. You know? <laughs> but say, oh, yeah, there's a lot of thinking. Thinking's like this. Oh, I really, I really, I'm not enjoying this at all. Not enjoying's like this. It really doesn't matter. So you're just noticing with that gentle but persevering quality of attention, what's the attitude in the mind that's noticing? And don't make a big thing about it. Don't like turn around and look and go, what's the attitude? It's not a big deal. Sometimes it's just calmness. Sometimes it's just peace. Sometimes you don't notice, fine. Then notice the breath, the body, the thought, whatever it is that's predominant. As soon as it starts to be a problem, Something's a problem here. That's kind of the sign. Oh, okay, check out what's what's going on in the mind. Utajaniya, uh, the teacher says, a very easy way to see is as you're sitting, as you're walking, as you're eating, as you're showering. Just to notice, are you wanting something to happen? That's wanting. Duh, you know, it's like it's not any big subtle thing. Are you wanting something to stop happening? you know, aversion, fear. Or he said, do you not actually have a clue what's happening? (laughs) And sometimes we don't, huh? Oh yeah, I'm meditating, I'm here at Gaia House. But I would add to that, is it all about me? Whatever's happening, is it all about me? None of this is with a judging, it's just with interest. Just with interest. Let interest do the work, not wanting So in meditation, we're learning to recognize and trust just those moments of isness, of purity, of natural peace and ease. It's natural for all of us. It doesn't only come with deep concentration. Just notice it. Trust it. Really learning to trust your own insight, your own uh, connection to truth. No one else can give that to you, but no one else can take it away either. And then really getting interested in and recognizing how we get seduced by these habits that obscure. So I just want to say, uh, just talk a little bit for a moment about just playing with recognizing and noticing a couple of the strong habits, particularly right now, uh, craving and aversion, because they're so strong, and also... In terms of early days in retreat, you know how the so-called hindrances, I really don't like that word, 
It shows that hindrances to concentration, but difficult emotions come up. They come up anyway, but they come up really kind of strongly first days of a retreat. Different ones of us have different ones that come up, and they can kind of just take us away. So the specific of craving is really sense desire, or the second one is aversion or ill will. Not just you know a moment of aversion, but you really start hating everyone, everybody, everything's wrong, you know. Or in the sense desire, you're just sitting, you know, I could have this for lunch, I could have this for dinner, I wish I brought a different pillow, I wish I had a different room, I wish, you know, you just, or I have a friend who used to fantasize about his wardrobe, and, you know, if you had a shirt he liked, he'd fantasize about getting it in five different colors, and he said he would spend, like, you know, hours in sittings doing this. Okay, on that level, we're in the hindrance, hindrance of sense desire, right? Just like a little over the top. Sleepiness, tiredness, sloth and torpor, dullness. Fourth one is the flip side of that. The mind's just spinning, spinning, spinning. We're all thinking a lot, but I mean spinning with some kind of worry, obsessive kind of worry, or your body energy is really restless, where you feel like you just want to jump out of your skin or run screaming out of the hall. And what goes with most of those then is doubt. Doubt usually manifests as thought, doubt in yourself, doubt in the practice, doubt in the time, doubt in, can also just be a wavering, an indecision. Should I be with um, the third or the fourth way of being with the breath? Which one is helpful for me? Is it now, is the breath helpful for me or is it better to be with the body? What works for me? Joseph said, see what works. What does it mean what works? (laughs) That's doubt. And especially when it takes the form of thinking about the practice. So then we think we're practicing. We're just thinking, 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 but we think we're practicing. That is so much suffering, I tell you, you know. But to recognize any of the, oh, that's doubt. Just don't go too far down that row. It's like they say the donkey between two bales of hay that can't decide which one to eat out of and starves to death. So if you're like, is it the body? Is it the breath? Is it calming the breath, the helpful one? Or what was that third one? If only I could remember that third one, that's probably it. Drop it. Just feel the damn breath. Or feel your body or your butt, or it doesn't matter. Just connect with something that's happening now. That's actually the antidote. That's all I have to say about doubt. But I was going to go into craving, desire. I just want to say a word about the word itself, because in English, the word desire or wanting covers a wide range of mental states that in the Pali language that these teachings are coming from is more specific. And he's going to talk a lot about that, I think, whenever he talks tomorrow. So I dare not go too far into it, or my name is Mud. But I just want to say that when I'm talking about craving, tanha, it's a particular quality of mind and heart. This kind of thirst is the closer Translation, where, you know, I want this. You can almost feel, you know, the contraction around it. It's a, and so there could be what we would say in English, desire, I desire to take care of my children. You know, you say, well, that's a good desire. I actually, I was going to say I hate it. That's not really helpful, is it? But that's how my mind works. I don't think it's so helpful to say that's a good desire and that's a bad desire that just perpetuates this way we have of looking at the world of good and bad. But... Desire, tanha, as a form of kalatia, torment, impurity, it's not about what the object is. It doesn't matter. It's about that quality of thirst. So that thirst could be for pizza. That thirst could be for enlightenment. The thirst could be for anything. But say, you say enlightenment or taking care of my family, that's a good thing. Yeah, it is. And one can have an intention kind of a willingness to do that we might call desire in English, but isn't that thirst? So you see what I mean? Is this thirst that is what blinds us, what keeps us locked into the object, what keeps us in samsara. Because the thing with craving is it has this promise. It's so seductive. Like the wanting, we tend to overlook the wanting, but doesn't it have the seductive thing? Tell it, just whispering if you can only get this, you'll be happy. I mean, it's not so obvious because we can hear that doesn't really work. No, just 
this next calm sitting, or if I had a sweater, or if this pain wasn't here, or, you know, if I had a new job, or whatever the heck it is. The seduction of the craving is when I get this thing, I'm going to be happy. And we don't tend to look at the craving, we look at the, the thing, the object, a mood or a physical thing or whatever. And when the thing actually happens and the craving goes away, there is that natural peace and ease. But we don't tend to notice the natural peace and ease. We notice we have this thing and we're happy. We impute it to the thing. We impute it to the state. We don't recognize that the peace and ease is what's here because we're not clouded by craving in this moment. But then it has that seduction. We start to feel dis-ease again because craving comes up. Well, okay, now I have this, but what about the next one? So what we need to do is just start to look at how craving itself feels in the mind, in the body. I recently was having a discussion with some friends about the quality of craving, about this promise, and how when we really look, really look, we can start to see the suffering of craving, but when we don't look, we don't notice it. And this friend said, well, it's like this is a person who really likes cookies. And the person was saying, well, you know, there's the craving, but then I get the cookie, so this isn't really suffering, Right? We get the craving, and then we get the cookie, and it's all fine. And then the craving comes, and we get the next cookie, it's all fine. So, okay, but then what about when you don't get a cookie? For so, but I always get the cookie. <laughs> That's samsara. That's why we keep on spinning in it. We always get the cookie. And if it's not this cookie, then the mind is really good at thinking up something else to hide that we didn't get that cookie. That's how we stay spinning. Samsara actually means this round of birth and death, of wanting and dying and wanting and dying, moment to moment. And when we don't stop to look, we think it's making us happy. You stop and look and it's unbearable. So then we don't want to look anymore because it's unbearable. So we go back to, okay, never mind, I'll just keep getting the next cookie. I don't have to deal with it too much. It's what they call rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, right? But at some point, the Titanic's going to go down. At some point. But we don't have to wait for that point. Because when we actually can just know, oh, wanting feels like this. Honest. We really, just wanting is like this. Next time you're doing walking meditation is a good one because if there's a thing you want, in walking meditation, there's the illusion that you could stop walking and go get it. You know, if there's something here, right? So, in the sitting, at least, there's social pressure. But if it's wanting a state, you can't make that state happen, so then it's clear that the wanting is suffering, but not really clear because you tend to jump over it and just say, oh, I'm a useless meditator, and then you go to aversion. But anyway, try it in walking. Wanting comes up. Maybe you just want to stop walking. You want to hear the bird. It doesn't matter what you want. And there's nothing wrong with the thing you want. But see if you can just do that Tai Chi of oh, wanting is like this. Notice how it functions in the mind and the heart. That's all, not with judging, with interest. How does it function? Notice if there's a feeling in the body that can help us just stay present with it. Just keep on noticing, keep on noticing. At some point, I promise, I'm not saying how long, I'm not saying for how long, but at some point, it'll go away. Because everything goes away. Stay really present. Okay. You can really notice it gone. Don't just jump to the next thing. Just hang out there and notice the goneness. Notice the goneness. And the same applies for aversion. Just notice the goneness. That's all. Maybe there's a natural peace and ease. Maybe it's that much of a moment of goneness and the mind, you know, whips up another one. <coughs> so just playing with that really starts to shift our relationship to experience. So at this point, it's like whatever's happening is interesting. Whatever's happening, even wanting, even aversion, even meing, is a doorway to recognizing peace and ease. You don't have to get rid of it. Oh yeah, wanting's like this. At that moment, we've stopped being so seduced by the object. Wanting's the next object. And the mind is just aware of it. Awareness can be with anything.
with anything. Same with, say, pain. Just one little thing I want to say. Physical, difficult sensation. But also emotional, or also if there's a sound that's bugging you, whatever. When the mind's really balanced, you can, the attention can really be with that unpleasant sensation. It's fine. But as soon as you start to notice reactivity or you know tightness in the mind, don't give so much attention to the sensation. Notice the aversion or the fear or the pulling back. And that's fine. There's no like saying you have to bear it. We're not here to cultivate aversion. We're here to cultivate awareness. So when you're aware, ah, aversion's like this. And as, as Rodney said, some points you need to pull back because we don't want to just cultivate aversion. That's a skillful means. Then when the mind's balanced again, you're in touch with awareness again, the difficult thing may arise. Can you really be present with it? So that the whole thrust of the practice isn't to, to last through things, but just to get more and more and more trusting with recognizing what's the attitude in the mind right now. That's the effort we put in to really trust the steady, non-judging process of awareness. And this non-judging process is really radical. Martin Luther King said, in terms of non-violence, he said, non-violence means avoiding not only external physical violence, but also internal violence of the spirit. You not only refuse to shoot a person, you refuse to hate him. That same level of pure, kind awareness, non-judging awareness with what's ever arising in our experience. Non-violence, active presence, but that gentleness, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, but steady. We learn to trust that the wisdom, the deeper seeing, the subtlety, it arises by itself when we're willing and able to just trust the steadiness of this non-judging, gentle awareness. It's really manifesting active non-violence. So I just want to end with something Gandhi said in terms of, he invented a word for non-violence. That was a more active word, satyagraha, which translates as truth force. And I like to think of our Awareness practice, as Ronnie said, it's really about honesty as truth force. It's just in any moment the knowing mind arising and just a willingness to be totally present and truthful with whatever is. It's almost like we learn to love the awareness without reacting so much to whatever's happening. And then whatever's happening becomes the doorway back into natural peace and ease. So one of my teachers said to me, actually a really tough teacher, but he said, you know, there's nothing you need to be afraid of because awareness can be with anything. Awareness doesn't care. So in that way, you really can enjoy your practice, your life, practice in life, same, same. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.